Welcome and thank you all for joining us for this episode of the Matthews Podcast, a podcast highlighting commercial real estate news, topics, and trends from top professionals in the industry. I'm your host, Matt Wallace. I have been in the commercial real estate industry for a little over 10 years, executing on over a billion dollars in transactions across retail, multifamily, and industrial assets. I now serve as a market leader at Matthews, helping to expand and grow the brand into new markets. Today, we are joined by Taylor Avakian, a premier client advisor in the multifamily sector. He has a ever-increasing market share across the Western United States, as well as Greg Kavaklis, our uh, capital markets expert who will be joining us today and helps commercial real estate operators with financing solutions up and down the capital stack. Uh, in this episode, we're going to dive into the current multifamily market, explore the factors that make a multifamily deal pan out, uh, and answer your pressing questions about what rising rates mean for owners. So let's please welcome to the podcast, Taylor Avakian and Greg Kavakis. Welcome, guys. Thanks, Matt, for having us. Looking forward to uh, digging into this market and discussing some fun things about the multifamily and where we're headed. Yeah, thanks. Thanks again, Matt, for having us. And uh, Taylor, it's good to see you again. I know we've been busy on um, some deals going on this year, so I'm happy and uh, excited to get into it with you. We're going to keep it rolling, Greg. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Let's start off with kind of just a brief overview of where we are in the multifamily market now. You know, how does it compare to last year and how does that compare to even our pre-COVID market? Yeah. So let's start with you. Sure. Absolutely. So Looking back, last year was an extremely hot year for multifamily, uh, specifically on the West Coast in Los Angeles, where we do most of our work, or I do most of my work. And it was one of those time periods where during COVID, during 2020, a lot of capital was trying to figure out what was happening. There were a lot of great deals that went down during that time, um, but people were just trying to figure it out, trying to see what was happening. and pushing through 2021, everyone had this money, this supply that was sitting in their bank accounts, ready to be deployed. Plus all stimulus, PPP, a lot of people were just flush with cash. And so they were buying hand over fist as much as they could because debt was still extremely cheap when the Fed dropped the funds rate to zero, right? Basically almost free money. It was a great opportunity for someone, an investor looking to invest assets into real estate into multifamily and they jumped all over it and now when did when did, uh, when did you see that real shift from people kind of like being scared on the sidelines to man i gotta get this money out the door working like when, when did that actually happen yeah that's a great question so there was a lull march of 2020 to maybe summertime end of summertime it was slowing down people did not for two months there was nothing no one did really any transactions uh, anything that we were working on was just basically closing out escrows and things that had happened previously. And then end of summer, middle of summer is when things started picking up. And then through the end of the year, uh, we saw a lot of transactions occurring, a lot of off-market deals, actually because people just wanted pricing. They they kept getting these offers. Hey, I'll get you this price. And they're like, sure, yeah, bring it to me, right? And then they'd get it. And then the next one and the next one and the next one. So it was kind of stacking on top of each other, making these deals happen, making the prices go up. I remember a situation where a deal sold within six months and they didn't do anything to the property and it sold for a million dollars more. And like this was just the 
stepping stone, <laughs> the uh, what was happening in this market. And then take that into this year, or excuse me, into 2021, same thing was happening. People were just spending, spending, spending. And then through today, I think when things started shifting and they have shifted is when, and Greg could speak to this even further, is when inflation started occurring, when the economy started feeling what is happening with all this money coming into the system and the, the Fed increased the federal funds rate and the bond market reacted, which obviously affected the mortgage rates. And once those started jumping up, what I'm seeing today is prices that we could have gotten six months ago when the interest rates were, you know, in the twos, middle threes. Now that the interest rates are, you know, four and a half, five, and, and Greg can speak on this a little bit further, it just doesn't, the deals don't pencil. It doesn't make as much sense. Now, deals are still getting done. Great areas, great locations. We sold a couple deals that were two caps in the twos, right? But these are in high, fantastic markets, Beverly Hills, Westwood, you know, legacy. These owners just want to own and hold forever, right? We'll, the, we'll, we'll dive into uh, interest rates in a second, but I, I want to highlight that point you just raised. You know, the, the two cap deals that still happens in, the, in yeah. these incredibly hot markets. Like, what is the investor looking for when they're buying at a two cap i mean are those are those guys coming in all cash are they underwriting crazy rent growth or are they just looking to park money like what what's the impetus for buying something at a two cap out in southern california yeah so it's a it's a little bit of both unique situations i think number one is to park money people want to put properties in locations that or put money in in properties where they know there's going to be appreciation where they know they're not going to lose value and there is almost a, you know, owning in Beverly Hills, there's a little bit of a stigma, kind of a pride thing that comes with, with doing that. A lot of old money, a lot of those owners have owned these properties since the 80s. So not a lot trades. And when it does, you can get astronomical rent, like the rent growth in those neighborhoods. Now, Beverly Hills itself is rent controlled. But even with that, if anyone moves, you can jump the rents up significantly, 15, 20, 30, 40% in some cases, depending how long the tenants have been there. So it was a combination of that, a combination of there's still value add to be done. So you can be a value add investor and still make some money. And then the fact that just the, the, the level of appreciation that has occurred in those markets over the last you know, 20, 30 years, it's like, even if you buy a two cap, with the appreciation added and the benefits of cost segregation, if you're you know a very wealthy individual, you're coming out positive, which is crazy to think about, but <laughs> that is that's what the numbers say. All right, let's go into the the interest rate and debt side a little bit, and maybe this is really in Greg's wheelhouse here. So, you know, Greg, we're looking at you know a market now, and rates are going up, and everyone's you know freaking out. But this doesn't look that different of an interest rate environment than we were just three years ago. So, I mean, what's your take on on how this has slowed down the markets on the um, on the investment sales side. Yeah, thanks, Matt. I, I think just to add some color on this, um, add some, maybe people just have kind of short-term memory, right? It's like in my career, going into 2020, COVID happened, 2021, bond yields tanked. Um, I was locking in some of the lowest interest rates of my career, five, seven-year fixed programs, full-term IO, at three and a quarter, 315, right? And then um, when the market slowly starts to change, um, obviously, you know, people maybe panic a little bit. Hey, rates and terms are looking a little bit different. Bond yields are coming back up and lenders are moving with the marketplace. 
Um, but if you're looking at where, where apartment money is priced today at mid 4% range on five and seven year fixed programs, in 2018, I was, I was roughly locking in the same exact rates on five, seven and 10 year fixed um, loans, right? So it, it's almost like we've kind of leveled off and, and we're priced exactly where we were going into 2018 and 19. But um, I think people are just shocked, uh, you know, that, that it was such a drastic change. And it's because if you look at the amount of money that was printed over the last couple of years going through the COVID uh, pandemic, um, essentially all that, you know, translated into higher inflation. And so it really comes down to the Federal Reserve, I think, acting um, quicker historically than uh, I think is almost unprecedented how quickly they acted in order to raise rates. And I mean, this year we're coming off, what, two back-to-back 75 basis point increase hikes. So the, the speed at which the Fed reacted, I think, just threw the market into a little bit of panic. But if you look at the Fed, I, I don't know, my, my kind of forecast this year is, you know, they have the dual mandate, one, to keep unemployment very low um, and also to, to kind of rein in inflation. And that inflation print the other month, I think the, the year over year headline number was still about 9.1%. So we've got a ways to go for inflation, you know, to come down. And, and the Fed, in my opinion, will be really hell-bent on, on, on bringing that number down. And one of the ways they will do that is continuing to raise rates throughout the year. So I, I think the next anticipated rate hike is going to be coming up September. Um, and depending on, on the CPI print next week, it could be another 75 bips. Um, so I think if you're just going back to your original question, you're looking at, hey, what is the difference between today and, and you know, obviously pre-pandemic? Um, well, we're coming off the floors of, of the lowest interest rate that I've seen in my career in 2020 and 2021. Um, and just due to the amount of, of money that was printed by our Federal Reserve or Central Bank, um, really inflation is the main driver, I think, of, of rates increasing, right? Our Federal Reserve, you know, has to increase rates in order to bring that number down as they're mandated to. So, so and what I'm hearing is that it wasn't, it's not the overall level necessarily, but just the the speed at which it happened and kind of surprised the market. And that's what kind of put that pause on, you know, call it early Q2 on some of the investment sales and kind of a, a little bit of the panic in the market at what we were going towards. So uh, how did that impact you guys directly? Did you have, did you see a lot of deals fall out? Was there a lot of retrading going on? Uh, Taylor, yeah. what did you see on the investment sales side? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, yes, plenty of retrades, um, especially how quick it happened. There were a couple of deals where because they didn't lock in their interest rate, they got retraded by the bank during escrow. And so when that happens, it's like, wow, these changed the numbers dramatically. If you're locking into three and a half and then the bank comes back to you and says, you know, actually just kidding, it's four and a quarter like 75 basis points on your spread and what you're underwriting, especially if it's a value add or a bigger shop who's looking at these IRR returns, they have metrics to hit for their investors. It changes everything. So yeah, we were getting hit with retrades. I think it was tough too, because uh, during these time when we're pricing deals, right? Any of the comps that we're looking at have almost no correlation with where the value is today, even like two weeks ago when we were pricing these deals. So it made it very difficult to have conversations with owners where two weeks prior, their property is worth more than it is today. And they're like, well, what do you mean? Well, why is that? Nothing's changed with the property. And they're right, nothing's changed with the property. But what has changed is how much money costs. And people buy property when money's cheap because 
there's a spread on what the cap rate is that they're going to be getting or the net income that they're going to be getting and the price of debt. And so when that spread compressed, it made it really hard for deals to pencil. So yeah, I mean, for a period there, and Greg, you could probably speak this too, there yeah. was like a couple weeks where people just didn't do anything. Like I didn't see stuff. I was like, no one wanted evaluation. No one wanted to do anything. They were still, it was kind of that limbo feel um, back in March of 2020. I don't know. Did you feel that, Greg? Yeah, it was almost kind of like a wait and see. Um, I know too, like during the pandemic, it, it's like this kind of rolled out, and you had a lend, you had a lot of lenders that were on pause, right? And so I, mean, I think a lot during that time period, what my clients found the most value in is really identifying the capital sources, um, especially on the multifamily side. It's a lot, a lot. I think that's the bulk of my business, right? A high percentage of my business is financing multifamily buildings in Southern California. So my clients found value. Um, in in basically my relationships and the letters that I've identified that were just full steam ahead. Yes, COVID's happening, but we're not slowing down on putting cash out and getting deals done. But there were a lot of lenders in the marketplace at that time who did slow down, um, you know, and had to kind of reevaluate, hey, you know, we're getting some late payments on our mortgages. Hey, we're holding off on lending right now. We're just managing everything that are that is on the books and in our portfolio. So really, like during that time period, it was a wait and see. But I was still getting some deals done because I've identified some lenders um, that were still full steam ahead and, and, and lending at full capacity. So I don't know. I, I think if you just look at, at the lender landscape in whole, you had some lenders kind of, again, you know, on the wait and see notion. But then you had other lenders saying, oh, wow, if, if some of the bigger guys with, with larger balance sheets are, are kind of backing out, now's a really good opportunity for us to get into the market, uh, make some loans and gain market share. And, and that really was the value, I think, that I provided to a lot of clients at that time. I need to give a shout out to Greg too for that because we we've, we've done a lot of deals together and I referred him a few clients. The people I was speaking to have relationships with banks because they do quite a bit of deals. And so when I told them what rates Greg was getting, they're like, seriously? Like they were very surprised. And so it through that process, I realized the value of having someone like Greg when we're working with these clients on a day-to-day basis to say, hey, look, this guy is I mean, here's what he's been able to produce. Go talk to him. Give him an opportunity. And uh, and we've been able to get some deals done where, you know, they've saved 35, 75 basis points on certain loans. So, like, it's very solid. It's a very good opportunity, I think, when we work in synergy together to just have your options. Be open to hearing what other people have to say. And uh, I found, like, during that time, it was it was nice to have different people in different pockets to to lean on for situations like that. Yeah, thanks, Taylor. And, and, and then think, to, to, yeah, go ahead, Matt. I was just say I think that's a really great point that uh, Taylor brought up. That Greg, that you uh, kind of live every day, so you might not even kind of realize how a lot of people view these banks. Is that it is? It's a free market, and the smaller banks and the, the the regional banks trying to gain their market share, they viewed it as an opportunity. So you know, to be able, but to be able to find those kind of newer banks that are trying to grow their market share, you need someone that's out there, you know, hustling, digging up those relationships and putting deals out constantly. So that, that you know, I, I think people almost feel that interest rates and loans are, they're a math equation. They're just, it's automatic. But, but how, how do you, Greg, how did you see the spreads that banks were willing to accept change during that time period? Did, th- did those move at all? When you talk mm-hmm. about those more aggressive banks, were they compressing their spreads? 
Yeah, so so really, you know, how I view the marketplace is that interest rates are going to move up or down, right? And there's always going to be people in the market that either maybe compress their spreads a little bit to get more competitive because maybe they're slower to put money out on the year. Um, you know, if Q2, Q1 or Q2 originations were slow, then some of these guys will come back into the market um, and, and maybe be the lowest cost provider, right? So, you know, if you look at, at the way that that a lot of micro lenders, lender relationships price, you know, you look at the regional banks, national banks, credit unions, CMBS groups and their spreads, et cetera. Um, what I notice is that, you know, some of it is kind of dictated by, by pipeline um, and some of them will slow down as well. And people are pulling into the market and pulling out of the market, I would say almost monthly. And so it's really important that given the you know financing opportunity that comes across my desk we go and we run a very efficient bid process because the lender that i spoke to two weeks ago or the lender that's working you know that the client has worked with for the past decade they're always they're not going to always be the most competitively priced in the market and that is the value i think that's the biggest value that clients have i'll, I'll give an example um, probably like the second loan i ever did uh, 21 units in West Hollywood is a $4 million deal. And this guy, his whole portfolio was financed by JP Morgan Chase. And I brought a lender at that time that was about 50 basis points under where JP Morgan Chase was priced, right? Um, 50 basis points on a $4 million loan, that's significant, right? So he found value in that. Um, and sometimes you just got to keep relationships honest. Um, so uh, I guess the long story short is that you know, pricing is shifting, I would say, daily depending on what the bond yields are doing um but lenders obviously sharpen their pencil you know for deals and we try to run a very competitive bid, uh like a very competitive bid process you know as we we assess financing opportunities that come across the desk uh, so taking that thought out six 12 more months you know the the fed has certainly indicated that future raises are very likely um, but with the last 75 basis point increase, we saw really no change in the 10 year uh, and actually dropped a little bit. So, you know, how much of this is already priced in and how much our future uh, federal funds rate increase is going to impact the, the 10 year, which is you know basically the, the standard for real estate investment? Yeah, I, and I know exactly what you're referring to. You know, we watch the the market pretty close, and obviously, you know, bond yields dictate a lot of the pricing that we're we're able to achieve. Um, but what you're referring to, you know, we had we had an increase in the federal funds rate, right? Which, if you look at the yield curve, I mean, that's that's technically the overnight lending rate, right? At which institutions can lend each other money, and that's kind of the cost of borrowing. So it's a very short term rate that was manipulated. The 10 year, we, we really didn't see any movement. In fact, if you look at the yield curve. I think we're inverted technically, right? Short-term rates are longer, are, are, are higher than long-term rates or two years higher than the 10-year today. So we didn't really see an effect in the 10-year. And, and during that week when we did have the hike, there was really no movement because I think that Thursday, we actually had a negative GDP print. I think it came out to almost a, a negative 1% GDP um, number for quarter two. So the market kind of looks at that in, in and it's kind of scared, right? So we had a, a big flight to safety, bond markets rallied and, and you know yields kind of traded down or stayed flat for most of that week. But if you look at, at this week, um, probably one of the most whipsaw weeks that I've seen, we had um, like the two, the 10 year touch almost 260 going in, in Wednesday this week. And then that market open this morning, we're at 285, right? So um, we had a very positive jobs report actually released today and that were those were July's numbers, which kind of which exceeded expectations. And also June numbers were revised 
and um, those are revised upwards as well. So I don't know, some more positive. I think economic information came out um, today. Um, bonds sold off and yields increased. So I think, yes, like nothing immediately happened when the Fed's rate was increased. We had a negative GDP print that Thursday. So there's, there's a big flight to safety. Um, a lot of institutions, people were buying U.S. government bonds, uh, keeping yields flat or compressing them down. But then this week, um, on the new job support, actually yields are, are pretty much back up. So I estimate with more increases expected coming in, in September, it's the same theme since quarter one. Um, I did an article with Globe Street, I think in March this year, uh, just continue upward pressure on rates as long as that federal funds rate is, is going to be increased to combat inflation. And that's kind of the general theme that I've been seeing since uh, I, I would say March this year. Well, so I guess that's the big question, right? Uh, everyone's been debating: Are we in a recession or not? And and what is your what is your guys' definition of a recession? Since now it's yeah. a, a fun a fungible thing. I'll just I'll I'll comment real quick, and then I want to get uh, Taylor's thoughts too. I mean, if you look at a recession, it's it's really interesting. You know, you have the Fed's biggest counter argument is yeah, but look at the labor market; it's a strong labor market, right? We have you know robust job creation and low unemployment. Um, but then on the on the other side, you, you've got other guys in another camp that are saying, well, we just had two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. So I think you've got, you know, the two sides of the aisles, which one is right? I don't know. Uh, but Taylor, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I'll uh, I'll speak to kind of a macro and then hyper specialize here in LA too, from a multifamily perspective. But mm -hmm. from a macro, just speaking to people like owners on the phones uh, and conversations I've been having, a ton of big companies, tech companies, manufacturing companies, any company. I have some friends in industrial who work with a lot of these guys. They're laying off a ton of people. And I just saw a report today that 500,000 jobs were added to the market as of recently. So mm -hmm. it's a weird push and pull, like who to believe is, are we doing really well in the jobs? Are we, are people firing people? There was a, a mortgage lending company I heard from someone that laid off like, I don't know, 500 employees or something like that. Like it's it, it's a weird limbo of where the cash is flowing. And then to speak on that, on how it's affecting the actual multifamily market here in LA, the weird thing about a recession in Los Angeles, or the weird thing about right now with a recession headed to Los Angeles is rent control being one of the aspects that kind of controls the growth in this area. It's very hard to build, which makes it even more, uh, you know, even more, I can't think of the word right now, but people want to invest in Los Angeles because there's a supply constraint. People want to move here, there's not enough supply, and it's really hard to build new product over here. A very another interesting thing about LA in the past two years is this eviction moratorium. So basically eviction moratorium, you can't raise rents, you can't evict anyone, um, in RSO Los Angeles, you know, rent stabilized buildings. This has been going on for two years and it's gonna go on for at least another two years. Like next summer they can end it, but it, you, keep, you can't raise the rents so you can evict someone in a year, but you can't raise the rents for another year after that. So for someone who owns a property where this inflation has caused their plumber's expenses to go up, their management to go up, the cost for their, you know, wood, like utilities, trash, everything has gone up. They haven't been able to raise the rents. So their NOI is getting hurt. And like, where are you gonna, where's the flight to safety, right? So what I've been seeing 
uh, at least from an LA perspective, a lot of buyers are going out of state. They're they're like, I can't, it doesn't make sense. The two year time value of money of holding on to a rent control building where you can't raise rents for two years, the Delta, depending on the scale of the units, you're making, you know, two, three X, if you can raise rents 15%, like not even 20%, which in other areas of California you can do. So that was a weird way to wrap around the answer, but uh, supply constrained market in LA, there's always going to be demand, but the city and the, the politicians, or at least the legislation, makes it very hard to be a landlord in the city. So I don't know if that answers your question. So it sounds like even on this call, we can't agree. Are we in a are we in a recession or not? And that, you know, reminiscent of the the discourse nationwide. So yeah, uh, <laughs> it used hey, it used to be. Two quarters in a row, that was a recession. Yeah. But you know, that, didn't the uh, didn't the Fed come out and like say that they changed the definite definition of a recession or something like that? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like they <laughs> they don't want to admit it, but I mean, technically, according to the previous definition, uh, we are we are feeling something like that. And I don't know. I in my day to day life, I feel like I'm feeling something. I feel like there's something that's happening. Gas prices are crazy. Like. People are not going out and spending crazy amounts of money. They're not buying their Gucci belts or Rolexes or, you know, anything like that. They're they're being a little bit smarter with their money. So to me, recession is almost more of a mentality thing. It's like the, the consumer. We're the ones who cause us not spending the money. And so we're investing in real estate or doing those things. And this hedge against inflation, all this stuff, it's a whole big aspect that I'm not smart enough to answer, but I'm feeling it in the day-to-day -day life of like, all right, man, that hot dog is, you know, I guess Costco is not feeling it, but other, other places you go to restaurants and you're like $20 for a, you know, grilled cheese. Like, whoa, dude, that's crazy. Uh, yeah, when, when, yeah. Co when Costco starts raising their hot dog prices, you know, we're in trouble. Then we know it. Yeah. yeah. When those chickens start going up from five bucks to seven, you're like, oh crap, here we go. Yeah. Everything's more expensive. That's for sure. So, I mean, even maybe to just final touch on the, the macro question of inflation and, and how it's impacting us. And, you know, there's the obviously the pumping the money into the system and all of the, um, the legislation that helped us get through COVID, um, and, but also the supply chain issues, you know, the, the constraints that have jacked up prices and then the war in Ukraine in how that flowed through to energy. So how how long term do we think, you know, this inflationary environment is going to last? And is the Fed going to be effective just through just through rate raises? Yeah, I think I'll, I can comment on, on kind of the Fed stance or, or at least my understanding. So, look, it's, it's tough because the Fed doesn't have, you know, control over um, supply chain constraints, right, due to geopolitical issues. But the Fed has control over manipulate the overnight lending rate. And so there's a, there's a school of thought where, wow, should, should the Fed just go so hard on, on, on you know, the interest rate, right, on, on the overnight interest rate? Because uh, it just seems like they're doing it at just such a pace that's, that's definitely going to add um, – you know, or definitely put us in a recessionary environment, right? Uh, I, I don't know. I think time will tell. It's really hard. I don't think anybody has the crystal ball to see when when supply chain issues are, are going to be completely resolved. But if if you kind of just circle it back and bring it to multifamily here, especially in LA, 
um, you know, or the Southern California market. Again, I think Taylor touched on this before. It really benefits from that supply demand imbalance. There's just such a demand for housing in Southern California and nearly not enough supply um, to meet that demand. And then I think you touched on it with the, um, the supply chain constraints, the material and labor shortages that a lot of you know, developers are facing. Um, it almost creates like a moat, right, for multifamily. It increases a very large barrier to building the new supply to meet that demand. So I, I think you can look at, at, at those couple factors and, and those really highlight um, its response to inflation, you know, as an, as, as an asset class. I think real estate in general, it will, it will keep, you know, it, it will remain attractive even despite the increased cost of capital that we're seeing since January. Uh, so we're going to wrap up here shortly, but mm-hmm. do you guys have any, uh, you know, big takeaways for investors, uh, people that are in the market or to, to buy or sell multifamily uh, that, that we can offer up as a, a parting takeaway? Greg, you want to start it off? Yeah, I can start it off. I think, you know, if you're um, an investor in this marketplace and I can comment on it more through through the mortgage making lens and kind of the, the lending side, as rates continue to rise, it's it's more important than ever to retain in the line, I think, with qualified intermediaries um, to identify lenders in the marketplace who are providing the lowest cost of capital to win deals. That is the biggest value add, I think, that um, us mortgage brokers, mortgage bankers in the market are providing to clients. Uh, even as acquisitions, you know, the purchases, they get a little bit tricky and, and we're really trying to make deal pencils. Identifying the lenders that are in the market who are underwriting maybe to a 115 DCR instead of a 120 or 125. Maybe identifying lenders that are not using stress rates and underwriting at note rates, et cetera. Um, they're out there, right? And, and this is where we're successful in placing deals and and helping investors get the most loan dollars on a lot of purchases. So I think that's my biggest takeaway. It really matters who you work with in this market. It's very important to work with an intermediary that's active in the market and, and is really deal making because the relationships with lenders, you know, that we have will save you on a retrade or, hey, we're running out of a, you know, a 60 day rate lock. You know, we can go to our lender, do the amount of volume that we do. And I've had a success in maybe extending that rate lock for another 15, 20 days in order to accommodate the interest rate that we locked in. So um, that's one of my takeaways. Just it's more important than ever to retain in the line with uh, you know qualified financial intermediaries to uh, identify, I think, lenders in the market who are providing the lowest cost of capital. Yeah, and uh, that's a great point, Greg. And I would say just know what kind of investor you are. Know why you bought property in the first place, why you're holding on to property. Like people get in this complacency of having something and it's the easiest thing is to not make any changes. Sometimes the reason you got a property was one reason and the reason you're holding on to it is a different reason. But if you ask yourself as an investor, you know, hey, why am I doing this? Why am I dealing with tenants? Why am I, you know, trying to add value to properties? Why am I um, doing these things to increase my net worth or increase my security for my family? Or am I doing it for my kids or grandkids? Just understand why you're investing in real estate and then figure out if the reason that I'm holding this is the best case scenario for me, then do it. And a lot of times it is with some of these laws and things like that. Like most of the time, it makes sense with your goals to keep on holding on, keep on keeping on, as they say. But there is a certain amount of time where, you know, you bought a property for a certain reason. It doesn't align with that anymore. There's better options out there and exploring those options and just getting information, like just 
figure it out. Like have people give you opinions, go to somewhere else, go to a different broker, go to a, you know, go ask your mom, go ask the neighbor down the street, the the guy who owns what he's seeing. Just educate yourself on what's going on in the market, what the values are, what you could be doing with your equity. Like, are you making the most you could be if that's your goal? And then, you know, just seeing what you can do. I think, I think being educated uh, is the best course of action in a time of uncertainty like now and keeping your ears to the ground and, uh, and ready to move, be ready to make a change when an opportunity comes. I love that. Yeah. And you know, as, as with everything, there's, there's nuance and, and dislocation in, in the market and there's always going to be opportunities when the, especially when the uncertainty is highest. So you know, as uh, as Buffett would say, you know, be be greedy when everyone else is fearful, and fearful when everyone else is greedy, right? So uh, uncertainty creates that opportunity. And if if anyone has any questions on how to better best seize that opportunity, go to you know who to talk to, Greg and Greg and Tim. So, guys, uh, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, it's really great insights here, and we really appreciate your time. Uh, and for everyone listening, uh, take care and. Be sure to tune in next time.